Hey, and welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's uh, not so super Wednesday, following Super Tuesday. Quite a day there, Claude, huh? We'll talk about that. The podcast that translates Donald Trump, we take an honest look uh, at the current administration. We expose existential threats to America, except I don't have anything to say about the coronavirus. I mean, I'll just leave that to Anthony Fauci and Mike Pence and uh, yes. Alex Azar. And anyway, we'll speak today with Kim McFarland. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Her book is called Revolution. She was a deputy to... Uh, uh, to Michael Flynn, but came in very early and has mm-hmm. fascinating stories about the early stages of Trump. We'll also talk about the world, about China, um, and about foreign policy. And we'll also get her sense of what went on yesterday, Super Tuesday. She's a Washington hand. Uh, her new book, the actual full title is Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We the People. I'd like to discuss a few things first, mainly about Super Tuesday. Okay, Claude, um... Yeah, you want to say any more about the coronavirus? You know what? I do not. Although there are a few things about it. I mean, I, I heard an expert interview uh, podcast about it on um, Tuesday. And here's a few things that they said. Number one, uh, they said, uh, you know, there's no need to panic. Uh, more people die from the flu than the coronavirus. Ninety eight percent, ninety nine percent of the people that catch it survive and are fine afterwards and so uh there's no reason to uh uh, panic and middle age maybe young a little older you're fine it's only you know the news for all white males right now is Uh mixed you're a greater risk for coronavirus but you're a much better chance of running for president on the democrat side or the republican side (laughs) right all right Yes. No, absolutely. 77, 78, 76, 72 hike, you know? Yeah, that seems to be the uh, sweet spot. It's quite amazing. Yeah. Right. The Democrat Party of Diversity ends up with three old white guys. Well, Sally, two now. Yeah, no, it's two now. And well, wasn't Bloomberg's it, out. Yeah, wasn't it Mayor Pete that said, uh, you know, they were talking about social justice and things uh, in the black community. And he said uh, it's interesting that there's just a stage full of, you know, white folks talking about things that are best for uh, black people. Old white folks. Right. And he's he was right, although he didn't, I guess, um, help with the own, with the problem that he helped um, uh, discover. Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, anyway, uh, let's talk about it. I mean, I, I'll say this, and everybody knows I'm a swamp creature. I've been in Washington a long time, watched a lot of elections. I have never seen such a rapid turnaround from death to life, death to resurrection to life, as with Biden. I mean, people were counting him out. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of people thought, well, maybe he'll do well in South Carolina, but that won't be enough. Man, that was enough. Right. If I were Joe Biden, first of all, I would I'd be building a shrine to James Clyburn. Uh-huh. Uh, number three ranking Democrat, uh, older African-American gentleman from South Carolina who endorsed him. But he has the uh, J- uh, James Clyburn's uh, world famous fish fry down uh-huh. there in South Carolina. And it's one of the big political events of the year. And you got to go if he invites you. All right. And, and Biden went. And I mean, uh, Clyburn just totally saved him, just totally saved him. And then the amazing thing is how much attention was paid to what was going on in South Carolina and what that, you know, you tell me, was it what went on in South Carolina? And people said, all right, there's Biden. Well, so I'll, a lot of people decided their vote in Super Tuesday in the last three days since South Carolina. But did Bernie scare them, too? I don't know if Bernie scared them more so than the Biden camp and the Biden supporters 
just needed confirmation. Just needed something to show them, okay, everything is what we thought it was. It's okay. And I think South Carolina was that confirmation for them. And somehow, boy, they got the uh, other pieces to fall. Klobuchar and Buttigieg, bang, bang, and went to Texas. Yeah. They they did this right after South Carolina, went to Texas to endorse them. Talk about momentum. Even had uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke. Right, yeah. Where was he? Where has he been? That was a mistake, by the way, because he said, you know, Beto, I really appreciate he was in Texas. Mm-hmm. But he came into endorse. He said, I'm going to make you my point man on guns. <laughs> Remember, Beto was the guy who said, we're going to come get your guns. We'll take every we're gun that take, you have. Yeah, I'm not even sure if Bernie said that, like said something as extreme no. as Beto on well, guns. No, no, Bernie has got only a D minus right. from the NRA, not an F. <laughs> so, uh, no, he's never said that. So there you go. I mean, uh, anyway, so, so then um, he cleans up on Super Tuesday, a whole bunch of states, you know, Virginia, North Carolina, Arkansas, uh, kind of expected there. But then Texas. That was a surprise. Looked like it was looked like Sanders. And then competitive in California. Now Sanders is going to win California. Mm-hmm. But Biden's coming out with a delegate lead. Right, and I don't think anyone thought that Biden would come up with a delegate lead after Super Tuesday. I mean, maybe close, no, but not no. with a delegate lead. Absolutely. So he is now the man to beat. A couple other things I have not heard. I, I think the chances of a brokered convention now are very small. Right, you think Biden's just going to walk away with it? Oh, it's going to be one guy or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably going to be Biden. Hmm. But um, at this point, because if you look at the map... I mean, Bernie will still get a lot of delegates, and there'll be some fighting, but Biden gets the majority. That's it. Now, let me get right to the heart of the question, I think, for the Democrats. Here's their problem. Someone said, uh, I think it was actually that uh, Marie Harf, that Democrat liberal uh, former State Department spokesman. She was on um, the Outnumbered show on Fox, and she said, uh, if Bernie is the nominee, the moderates will reluctantly come over. Okay. But... But if Biden's the nominee, I don't see the Bernie people coming over. 100%. Absolutely. You agree with that? Oh, 100%. And, I mean, I think that even the fact that um, Mayor Pete and uh, Amy Klobuchar both dropped out of the race right before Super Tuesday, this gives them ammo for the fix being in as far as the establishment not wanting their guy to be the nominee, even though he had all the momentum moving into it. For you know that they're being ganged up on. What's uh, Richard Wilbur, the poet, say? Even paranoids have enemies. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes paranoia makes sense if they're all really after you, and uh, they're all really after Bernie. So his people are going to be very angry, and he's going to have. You know, I, I think I think Biden now is likely to get on the first ballot, but but Bernie will have thirty five, forty percent. Which is right, a right. huge number. Now, how many of those people will come out and vote? You know, one of the things they said about 16 is that with Hillary there, you know, a lot of blacks did not come out and vote for Hillary. I, I take it blacks will come out and vote for Biden. Is that your sense? Yes, absolutely. But will the Bernie people? And, and by the way, I understand on the Bernie side, I was talking about this as a young people's movement, you know, all these millennials. Apparently, they didn't show up at the polls on Super Tuesday. They didn't show up. Yep. Seriously. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, any other reflections you have on this? I mean, I, I just think it, man, it just pow, wham, bam, well, you know, kazow. It, it makes Overnight, me... almost, virtually overnight. Did you see that tussle on stage? No, I did not. 
Oh, yeah, I was watching. Uh, and uh, he was in California. And uh, I was giving a speech, and two women tried to take the stage and get at him. They had signs, uh, something like, no more dairy. Oh. These, are ve- these are vegans. Right. I mean, if you're going to pick a big protest, if you're going to pick a protester, take on, a, I think, a, a female vegan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, as my wife said, they may not have a lot of protein, you know. I'm going to get some mail on oh, that. Yeah, or yeah. Well, and if they want to send you mail, they can send it to uh, BillBendedPodcast at gmail.com. Oh, that was clever. Thank you. Good. Um, but anyway, these two got up and they were saying, you know, no diary, dairy, not diary, no dairy. And they were trying to get to Biden and they were stopped by Jill Biden, Mrs. Biden. She just put her arm in front of them and blocked okay. their access to the oh. to the candidate. That was pretty dramatic. Look it up. Okay, I'll, pretty, I will. Pretty, I'll go to YouTube. He did seem energized. He did seem sharper. But will he hold shape? I mean, they were—they would be taking a huge chance with Bernie because you know he's—he's he's, he's just out there. But they're taking a chance with Biden too because you know even people like him say there's been you know significant enough evidence of kind of diminishing mental capabilities. To be unfair to Biden, the funniest comment made about him was he's not the man he used to be, and the man he used to be wasn't that much. I liked him when he was in the Senate. You know, he confirmed me as first drugs are. We got along. I think I don't think he's a brilliant guy, but I thought he was solid and steady and decent to me. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, but you know, he's he shows signs of diminishment from time to time. Point two, Claude, is the scrutiny of him will now really begin if the press does anything does anything like what it's supposed to do. It, it didn't happen because in the last four, six, eight weeks, people were starting to count him out. So you saw the scrutiny on Bernie with 60 Minutes and blah, 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 and Castro and all that. Now the scrutiny of Biden will occur, and we'll see how he holds up. It's risky for them, but, you know, either one of these guys was risky. So we'll see. We'll see how he holds up. The other thing is, um, I, I was looking at uh, Las Vegas odds, and, you know, you may not like Vegas and so on, but they, they do know what they're doing. That's why they keep building these big places, because they make money on their bets. And they've got Biden now. Odds on to win the nomination, but they have him pretty far down in terms of beating Trump. President Trump is beating him pretty handily, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I think it's a serious race. If Biden keeps shape and doesn't make too many gaffes, I think it's a real it's a real race mm-hmm. uh, because I think he runs strong in those areas where Trump's surprised. You know, Pennsylvania, maybe even Ohio, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. Right. So they're holding their convention. So we'll see. But, I mean, it's it's fascinating how, how quickly this moved. Uh, and, you know, I'd love to know the inside conversations that took place in the Democrat establishment. You know, we, we got to all muscle Bernie out of here. And Bernie's people must be furious. I saw that little uh, event he had in Vermont. Not, not that it was to diminish it. It's just you're never going to have a huge event in Vermont or enough people. If you had everybody in the state in one place, it wouldn't look that big. But Right. Um, it's such an odd state anyway, too. Uh, but but he wasn't angry, you know, but he also didn't talk about what went on that day, Tuesday. Right. But uh, he'll be going after Biden big time. I guess their next debate's the 15th. Biden, on the record, is pretty is pretty weak. It really help him now if uh, Obama came out, but he won't do it till after the convention. I guess he's going to stick to that vow or promise. Your thoughts? I heard a report that uh, Obama has not come out to endorse Joe Biden because Joe Biden requested that he not do it until baloney, baloney, okay. baloney. Okay. That's what Joe okay. says. Yeah, I asked him not to baloney. Okay, or about malarkey. I would say malarkey. As 
uh, as Joe Biden would say. But it's interesting because now I'm wondering what uh, Elizabeth Warren's going to do. I mean, you know, with Bloomberg dropping out earlier today, uh, right before we started taping this podcast, I mean, this leaves Joe Biden and uh, and Bernie Sanders. Will Elizabeth Warren stay in the race? Will she continue to? I don't know what difference she makes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she didn't even win her home state. She came in third. She came in third in her home state of Massachusetts. And there were so many states that Bloomberg finished third and she finished fourth. Uh, So, like you said, I don't think she makes a difference one way or the other. Yeah, you're right to point out significance of Bloomberg dropping out, which is notable, but not not significant, frankly. People thought he might be a significant presence, but he wasn't. I guess he got all of of Samoa except one vote for Tulsi Gabbard, and he got five. Five delegates. But uh, just, you know, huge waste of money. Right. Now, the question is, will he stay in with his money? Because $500 million can buy a lot of anti-Trump ads. And if he stays in, as he promised he would, to defeat Donald Trump, he's already endorsed Biden. Um, I mean, there, there you go. You had all these people on stage. And then in a period of three days, you get Buttigieg and uh, Klobuchar and and Bloomberg, you know, all to just flip and endorse him. Uh, really, it's just quite stunning. And, and he's not he's not a star. Frankly, he's not a star. Been around a while. So they're, you know, they're taking a chance, but we'll see. We shall see. We shall see. We shall see. We shall see. Oh, yeah. All right. Let's talk about uh, sports a little bit. Is there anything to talk about regarding sports? Well, the only thing I want to talk about regarding sports is they're talking about, you know, canceling or not having crowds at these events. Oh, right. Yeah. Can you have March Madness without the madness? It would be hard to. I literally thought, you know, what would it be like to watch a game in my house by myself because everyone can't go anywhere and there to not be any ambient noise or crowd noise uh, when Middle Tennessee State goes on a run against Duke. Yeah. And it would be hard to get into it. I guess they could pipe in the sound like they pipe in the laughter <laughs> on those sitcoms, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> Crazy, huh? Yeah, that would be wild. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org. Presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Joining us now is KT McFarland, author of the new book, Revolution, Trump, Washington, and We Are the People. All right, KT, I think this uh, book is really interesting, and anybody who's really interested in the country, the future of America, Donald Trump, uh, what life is like in government these days, ought to read it. Uh, let's start um, at uh, sort of close to the beginning, the Trump Tower days. Um Astounding, and I think people would be astounded to hear it. That well, when you got there, you saw that this was a. Uh, you, I think you called it one place like a high tech startup, like a bunch of kids <laughs> running around. There were like what fifteen people, twenty people, something like that. That's about right. I mean, what happened was that Trump, Trump's in charge of everything, and he was in charge of his own campaign. And his campaign did not consist of a big ground game or huge staff. It was Trump tweeting things out. And then traveling all around the country having huge rallies. And it was very effective. And when I arrived at Trump Tower about 10 days after he was elected, as one of his first appointments as the deputy national security advisor, I looked around and realized that, wow, these people had just pulled out the biggest upset in American political history, but they had no idea what was supposed to happen next. No idea of how to govern or 
or especially because Trump himself, as well as most of his advisors, had never been in government, had never worked in Washington. As far as I could tell, Bill, most of them had never even been on a White House tour. So they really didn't know and were not familiar with, or should be expected to, figure out how Washington works. So the first thing I did was to sit down with Ryan Priebus, the chief of staff designate, and then drew on a yellow legal pad. I drew out a map of the West Wing, and here's the president's office, here's the vice president's office, chief of staff, national security advisor, and went through what the functions of those positions were. It was pretty striking, and it was a little scary because it was so chaotic. But at the same time, I felt that it was a really essential thing to have happen because if Trump was going to govern as he campaigned as a completely different person, a complete outsider against Washington, then there would be no way he could govern the way he wanted to if he just hired the same old, same old people. Do you think that uh, uh, lack of prep was in, in part due to the fact that many of the people around Trump didn't think he'd actually win? Oh, I'm sure that was part of it. And Trump himself, um, even though there was an effort to interview people for key positions and kind of have a list of a short list of three or five people for each of the main jobs, Trump didn't spend any time on it. And I think part of it was he he was sort of superstitious almost of, you know, why should I spend time? It'll, I'll jinx it if I spend time thinking about my administration before I have an administration to even think of. Part of it was because Romney, who had run before, had spent so much time on preparing to govern that he forgot the one essential thing, which is to win. So I think for Trump, it was the only way to do it. And I think as much as it was a little chaotic at first, um, it was a very necessary thing because otherwise Trump would never have been able to put in place, I think, a very revolutionary and important redirection of American economic and foreign policy. Yeah, I want to move between uh, sort of the episodic, the things that you encountered and saw that I think are interesting, your experience and, and sort of policy and big issues. One of the things you mentioned uh, in the book that attracted you to him, and same for me, was his position on China, his positions on China, his whole posture toward China. Tell us about that. What, what was it he was saying that attracted you? Well, I should preface it by saying I'm a traditional Republican foreign policy community person. I've been in the Nixon and Ford and Reagan administration, so I was solidly in the mainstream. But I've become very disaffected with American foreign policy of both political parties, but especially the Republicans of the last 10 years. The focus on the Middle East, fighting two wars that we couldn't win um, with a great sacrifice of blood and treasure, not only was the wrong policy, but it distracted us from the, the policy that we should have been focusing on all along, which was China. So all the other candidates... It was a sort of typical neoconservative Republican foreign policy position. And then Trump comes along and is willing to say that, talk about the third rail. Let's get out of the Middle East. We don't need the Middle East. Um, Trump's talking about energy independence so that we don't have to be sucked into the squabbles um, that we've had to for the last several decades because we needed access to their oil. But most importantly, because he kept saying China, 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 you know, he was made fun of for being China obsessed. But I thought he was absolutely right to be China-obsessed. That is the strategic threat that threatens the very existence of the United States as a free and independent nation and leader of the free world. And everybody else is focused on Iran or terrorism or ISIS or Russia. Now, all those things are important, but it's in foreign policy and in life, it's, it's important to get the priorities right. And the priority for me was always China. So that's why I supported 
Trump and was probably one of the only sort of well-known national security experts on the Republican side who did support him early on. Yeah, and it still is that uh, that threat in so many ways, right? And he is uh, he is oh, confronting gosh, China. Worse. Yeah. Yeah, worse, right. Worse. Um, you talk about uh, a couple of names that keep coming up uh, uh, early on. Uh, were they hired or just consulted uh, Mr. Pottinger, Mr. Pillsbury? So at the very beginning of Trump Tower, Steve Bannon was one of the you know 15 people who was around. And he turned to me one day with an obscure story in an obscure newspaper talking about some new Chinese weapon. He said, get your China guy on this right away. What does your China guy think? I'm thinking, China guy? You know, the entire National Security Council staff for Trump Tower is like five people. Me, General Flynn, occasionally. I had a military assistant and then two interns. Um, and so I immediately realized we needed a China guy right away. And although General Flynn, um, who was the national security advisor incoming, had spent more time um, dealing with Middle East issues, which he was more familiar with, so I got in touch with two China guys that I knew and respected. I had no idea who they supported for president, but one was Matt Pottinger, who had been in the in the Far East um, with the Wall Street Journal, and then he had been in the Middle East with Iraq. In the Iraq War, he decided in his 30s he was going to enlist in the Marines and go fight wars. And then most recently had been on Wall Street. And so I knew him. I knew him well. And I asked him to come to Trump Tower and sit down and write us out of couple of pages on China policy. The transition wasn't focused as much on policies, but I thought for China it was important. So he did. He sat down and banged out on his laptop a three, four, five-page memo on China, which became the foundation of the Trump administration's China policy, which has been followed today. And then the other guy was Mike Pillsbury, whom I've known since, oh, I hate to admit it, since the 1970s, when we were both working on our doctorates. Um, and he was really the first, one of the first people to say maybe 10 years ago that the Chinese really were not going to be our friends as they progressed up the food chain and as they got more wealthy and more powerful. They were not going to open up. They were not going to be little brother to America's big brother. And Mike Pillsbury had written this book, 100-Year Marathon, which documents um, a very well-sourced book and documents what the Chinese were really up to which was to replace the United States as the dominant power, not just in the Pacific, but really in the world, by about mid-century. You said, that's interesting, I underlined it, you said that, that three pages of uh, Pottinger uh, still is, defines a lot of the policy and posture. He's there, isn't he there at the National Security yeah. Council? he has my old job. So I hired him to be the head of Asia for the National Security Council, but he has now become the deputy national security advisor. And and he works very well with Trump. He's one of the only people who can sort of turn Trump's thinking around on stuff that Trump is pretty set on. But Pottinger's terrific. And he advocated a much tougher line on China, but also using their using the economic weapon and the technology weapon against them. You know, people Good. have said, we've got to be tough on China, but they often will say, well, we have to do military stuff. Well, you obviously want to shore up America's military strength in the Pacific, but at the same time, use what we're really good at in our strategic advantage, which is our economy and and our superior technology. All right, let's talk about that job of yours that you held for how long? About five months. Okay. Uh, what happened? Um, what happened? You were deputy. You were hired as deputy national security advisor, right? Yes, I was hired by Trump himself um, as deputy national security advisor. Mike Flynn was the national security advisor. And then Mike Flynn 
targeted by the intelligence community even during the transition, but in the first couple of days of the administration, I, you know, he then got pulled into the Russia hoax, the Russia investigation, Mueller, all the rest, but he was forced to resign three weeks in. And then I, um, I asked President Trump if I could stay on as the deputy national security advisor, and Trump said, yeah, absolutely. And then I got a new boss as national security advisor, General McMaster, who wanted me fired, even though it had nothing to do with Flynn and the Russians and any of that stuff. He wanted his own people. And so it took him about five months to find my replacement. But effectively, I was collateral damage. Let's go back to Flynn. Did you and Flynn see eye to eye on issues on policy, basically? Yes, although I was more interested in getting out of the Middle East. But And, and my focus really was always on China and, and the Asia-Pacific region. His was more on the Middle East and on, on the wars and on terrorism. But I also thought that if there was a possibility of improving relations with the Russians, we should seize it because, you know, with the United States, if we could remain having China as our main, as, as our main not adversary and competitor, but keep our eye on it, it would be far better if we could do it without the Chinese and the Russians getting together. And I think that the end result of a lot of the Russia policy, however it was started, and whatever its motivations, the Sadly, the thing that I think is the hangover effect of it is that the Chinese and the Russians are now working together, and they're not working for us. They're working against us. We're talking to KT McFarland, the book, and I recommend you read it, Revolution, Trump, Washington, We the People. Uh, let me ask you to uh, talk about a couple of things in relation to your three favorite letters, uh, F, B, and I. Uh, Flynn, first of all, a fascinating discussion in the book about you and a few others with Flynn talking to him after he has spoken to the FBI. And there's this whole question of having lied to the FBI. Uh, fill us in a little on that because he couldn't quite remember whether he had contradicted himself or not. But it, it just wasn't uh, confidence uh, giving, was it? No. And what happened was even even before the administration started, so in early January, before Inauguration Day, um, I, General Flynn and I were at a, an event, um, a Washington event, with an outgoing national security team from the Obama administration and us, and a bunch of reporters and diplomats. And one of the reporters, um, as we were leaving, he said to me, well, you know, Flynn cannot be national security advisor. I said, well, he's the president's choice. And the guy said, well, no, he doesn't have the background. He shouldn't be. It's going to be a disaster. Well, it wasn't an unusual thing. Other people were saying it at the time. But Flynn and Trump had a very good relationship. They believed in a lot of the same things. And Flynn knew who was boss in that relationship. But sure enough, within 24 hours, the media started going after Flynn. This is before even Inauguration Day. And and made reference to this phone call that he had had during the transition that he had with the Russian ambassador a phone call which was absolutely legal and he should have had and he and he had but they were trying to paint it as some kind of an undermining of the Obama foreign policy and a violation of the Logan Act which is this sort of silly law that was passed 200 years ago and nobody's ever paid any attention to but it was what they hung the, the Russia investigation on and the Mueller investigation so fast forward to we're now in the White House for maybe 2 weeks and the I'm in my little office as the Deputy National Security Advisor, and the National Security Council uh, Legal Council comes into my office along with the Communications Director, and they say that the Washington Post has just called, and they have a transcript, or were read a transcript, of General Flynn's phone call with the Russian ambassador. And so we walked into 
Flynn's office and said the Washington Post has this highly classified transcript, and they claim that that you did talk to the Russian ambassador about sanctions, and you've been saying all along that you didn't. And Flynn seemed really confused. I said, Are you, did you ever say the word sanctions, or did you just imply it? I always assumed that he implied it, because in diplomacy, you often just imply things. You don't necessarily say them because you don't want to be held accountable for them later if your boss changes his mind. But Flynn said, he looked up with the most soulful eyes I've ever seen, and he said, I honestly can't remember. And he did not look to me like a man who was lying or dissembling. He just like looked like a man who was drowning and, and couldn't do anything to save himself. Like he was just confused, and he honestly couldn't remember. That's not a crime, but right. it could be spun as a crime. And then he had to resign a day later. But we'll get into this in more detail, if you don't mind talking about your own experience with the FBI. But sure. what can happen here is, I mean, I have my, my facts exactly right, but bear with me in this scenario. You could be Flynn and have a perfectly legitimate call with the Russian because you're going in and you want to, you know, to talk about a variety of things that's proper. You could then say, I can't remember whether I had that call or not, or no, I didn't have that call. And then another time in the interview, say, maybe I did have that call. And, 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 and that's the problem. The call's perfectly legitimate, but if you contradict yourself or there's a record of you contradicting yourself, then you can be accused of lying to the FBI, and that's a serious felony for which you can go to prison. That's right. But, it, but I would say it's a bit more sinister than that on the part of the FBI because it was the same series of questions they asked me where they have all the records. They have your files. They have your text messages. They have your phone call, your cell phone log. And they, they've seized that from the GSA. They have it. They're looking at it. And then they're asking, quizzing you about it. I mean, I had no access to any of those things. The FBI did. The Mueller investigation did. And so they, they kind of, they've got the briefing book in front of them, and they're quizzing me about it. And if I make a mistake and say that the phone call that from my recollection, which was all I was basing my um, my testimony on, my, my recollection, I had that call Tuesday night, not Wednesday morning, they can jump up then and say, aha, you should have remembered that, that's perjury, we're, we're threatening you with a perjury charge. I mean, that's the, that's the dirty underside of this. We have given our intelligence agencies vast and enormous power to go after terrorists, and that's a good thing, but they've taken those vast and enormous powers to target political opponents. And that's the really dangerous and bad thing. And it was my experience. I know yeah. other people in the Trump orbit who had the same thing happen. And yet those same rules and regulations didn't seem to apply to anybody, either any of the career FBI people or any of the Obama administration people. So it's not only is it bad, but it's an unequal application of the law. Again, I just, just the, uh, you know, the, the, <laughs> Uh, the way it's weighted, I mean, they're sitting there with a transcript of what you said uh, six months ago or a year ago or two months ago, and then they're asking you what you said, and you're trying to recall it from memory. You know, what are the odds you're going to hit it just exactly right in terms of what's sitting in front of them? And then some deviation from it, they can argue you're lying to the FBI. Yes, that's exactly what happened. God knows. Let's talk about your experience. You were there at home. Your husband was out. Was he grocery shopping? Good for him. A better man <laughs> I know, than he's I. He's a great husband of 35 years. So I'm home. I just bought, so I've left the government. I'm at my home in Long Island by myself. Kids are all grown, often living their own wonderful lives. And I just come back from the gym, pull into the driveway. Way. My husband leaves, goes out to run errands, and I get a cell phone call. Um, and in Eastern Long Island, you have really lousy cell phone coverage. So I wasn't sure who it was from. I heard a scratchy sound, and it was 
somebody saying, well, I'm from the FBI, and I, and I said, I can't really hear you very well. And he said, no problem, we're right outside, can we come in? That's creepy. That is so creepy. So they, I realized later that they were waiting for my husband to leave, knowing that I was home by myself. So they walk in, and I assumed it was just a routine checking on some employees, the people who had worked for me on the National Security Council, getting an update on their security clearances. Standard thing done at a... Well, you were no longer deputy? I was no longer deputy. I was gone, I left about five months before. Okay. They come in, and they say, well, they want to ask about the Mueller investigation and the Russians. And I said, do I need a lawyer? I never met with any Russians or talked to them. It wasn't my portfolio. And they said, well, we can't tell you not to get a lawyer, but we really just want to ask you a couple of questions. It won't take all that long. And so I, girl, stupid Girl Scout that I am, said, um, well, gee, I want to find out what the Russians did more than anybody. I want to get to the bottom of it. I want to make sure the Russians don't ever do this again. I want to make sure. Excuse me. You also asked them, am I under investigation? Am I a person of interest? You asked them those questions, too, didn't you, Girl Scout? I did. I did all. I mean, I, I asked them, do I need a lawyer? Am I under investigation? Have I done anything wrong here? Are you suspect? All those. And they, and they said, no, 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 no. And then they said, well, we're not here. We're not going to ask you gotcha questions. We just want to get a sense of what was going on in the Trump transition and in the Trump administration. I mean, I should have just kicked them out of my house at that point. But they said, well, we've driven up all the way from Washington to Long Island. It won't take long. Let's just. And so I thought, okay, let's just get this over with. And they kept saying to me that, well, you're just a fact witness, somebody to give us the facts of what was going on. And this goes on now for six, seven hours. They finally leave. My husband is joined me for most of this, um, and they really were just pulling out one at a time newspaper articles saying, does this jog your memory? Do you remember what was happening when this was going on? And it was really pretty fundamental stuff. A lot of questions and a lot of circling back to the questions, but pretty fundamental stuff. And in every sentence, I said, look, I'm, I'm qualifying this by telling you I'm only doing this off the top of my head. It was a busy time for me. I don't remember every phone call. I don't remember every meeting. I don't remember receiving or sending every single text message or email. Um, so don't hold me account. I'm not trying to lie or trick or be devious. I just don't remember perfectly. And they kept saying, no, no, we understand. We understand. And then they finally said, because I must have sounded like a broken record, you don't have to preface every sentence by that phrase. We know that it, you don't really remember right. everything accurately. You had two or three more meetings like this with them, right? And, yeah. and one or two you had in New York offices, law offices, where former Attorney General of the United States, Michael Mukasey, was there. I don't, I don't think he was present at the discussion, but he was there as a you introduced uh, him to them and so on and let them know that you knew someone of, of significance in the law here, right? Yeah, and they their indication every single time at at this law office, um, without the attorney general present, I said, am I still under, I'm still fact witness, I don't need a lawyer, I'm not under investigation. And it was the same story until they finally, at the end of the third interview, handed me a subpoena and and su- suggested my status had changed. And, and what, grand, grand jury, something like that? A subpoena for a grand jury and for documents. Oh. Then it was quite clear that they were doing something that, that, that they said they were not going to do, which is they asked me gotcha questions and that they were trying to get, catch me in a perjury trap. So I then got, like, the best lawyer in the country, Robert Jiffra, head of litigation at Sullivan and Cromwell in New York, and he called them, and it was indeed true that they were they planned to um, charge me with some kind of perjury because they said my answers were inconsistent 
and sometimes at odds with what others had said, and the other, I guess, was General Flynn. So the long and short of it is now, now several hundred thousand, you know, cooking up to half a million dollars in legal fees. Um, I meet wow. with the Mueller people in Washington, and they've got their binder notebooks knowing what I did every single minute of every single day during a several-month period. And I finally had had some access to my files. But I, I'd had to memorize every little minute of what I did and said with whom and to who I ran into, even in a hallway, because one little slip-up could be a charge of perjury. I had to prove myself innocent. They didn't have to prove me guilty. And there was one point where the lead investigator says to me, well, we're noticing from your cell phone and email and text message traffic that you're very active up until a certain point, and then you don't do anything for an hour, and then you're active again. Did you meet with Trump at that point, implying that I got my marching orders from Trump to tell Flynn to cut deals with the Russians. And I said, well, actually, that was lunch hour. And I walked with my husband along the beach, so I didn't take my cell phone with me. They made it very clear that they expected me to plead guilty to a crime I didn't commit, which was perjury, or to implicate others in crimes I didn't feel that they had committed either. And the alternative was they were going to charge me with a crime. And you referred to this earlier, and I wanted to wait to this point to to draw the conclusion. This was something that was one-sided. This was about you. This was about Flynn. This was about people, all people, all Trump's people. This was not the way they handled the investigations of, uh, well, what we're looking at now, the McCabe's and the Peter Strzok and and Lisa Pages, correct? Big difference. Big difference. So that's the corruption of a law enforcement agency. That's a major corruption, correct? I think so. This was a concerted attempt by the senior officials of the intelligence agencies to do in Trump, to stop him, stop his people, stop him from governing. They didn't want him to win. And then when he won, when he won they were going to go after him and everybody around him. And that's what they did. I mean, as former Attorney General Mukasey did say, for three years, almost three years, the media and their friends on Capitol Hill and then in the intelligence, they've sat around the room inhaling their own exhaust fumes and getting high on them. Yeah. Now, do you think, um, obviously, in the book, you go on, you know, and point out what happened with the, the two years, the Mueller investigation, two and a half years, and then impeachment. We all, all know that story. Uh, do you think, well, first, do you have confidence in Attorney General Barr? Yes, I do. I do, too. He's a good friend, and I, I think he's just great. And I just, oh, man, I just shuddered when he said, you know, the president's making it almost impossible for me to do my job. I said, don't, don't come up with the next sentence, please. And so I'm going to leave. I know I think he's really a, a stalwart. Um, and and Durham, do you know Durham? The, uh, the... I don't know him. We have mutual friends, and I think both men are courageous. I think they'll take it wherever it's going to go, and I hope they do, and and. If I'm right, if what happened to me was a pattern and happened to others, then I do think that it should shake the foundations of the FBI and the Justice Department and probably the intelligence community, and it should shake them to their foundations. And I frankly think that's a good thing, because unless the people who were doing these evil deeds are brought to justice, then that, you know, it'll happen again and again and again. Talking to KT McFarland, she's the author of this new book we're talking about, which is fascinating to me both in terms of policy and the personal accounts, which we've spent some time on. I want to get into more policy now. By the way, just as a, a, a particular in this, I was disappointed on the decision not to go further on McCabe. Do you think that's uh, a harbinger of what's to come? I don't know. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. I'm not a lawyer. But yeah. I thought that was a great disappointment. Yeah. And, and the other thing that... that Something that nobody is really discussing, but how on earth 
Did the F, did Washington Post come up with a highly classified transcript of a phone call between the president's national security advisor and the Russian ambassador? That thing was so highly classified, I didn't even know it existed, much less cleared to read it. I had the highest security clearances in government. But yet somehow it makes its way into the Washington Post. I find that just the workaround between the, the getting in bed, the intelligence community, you know, FBI, CIA, intelligence community in bed with with reporters that they've known for decades, and between the two of them, they're in charge in Washington, not the guy who just got elected president. Is the, is the White House, the West Wing, and I, I mean, I have the greatest admiration for the president and agree with him in almost everything. Uh, is it still a bit of a, a tech startup? I mean, it, it, it no. is incomplete, right? But I mean, no, there's a I lot think of the Trump, flow. You know, Trump is in charge. Trump is totally in charge. He's um, but he needs it, a lot of all the help. important things. He does need a lot of support in carrying oh. out his positions, but in formulating them, he not only relies on the White House, but he has a huge network of people that he calls all the time to, you know, what's really going on with the coronavirus in, I don't know, pick your country, in Italy. He, he, he really has a very big network, kind of like his own intelligence network, of people he's known for decades in the business community and the political community and the entertainment industry. So, um, so I think that that's, that's a big part of it, that he, he is confident in the formulation of his own policies. And I agree. I think he gets there by instinct and just sort of intuitively. I get there the long way around. I have to ration, reason yeah. myself, but I come to the same policy conclusions that he does. Yeah, I, you know, I just, uh, I guess I was out of line with him. He didn't correct me, but I met with him in New Jersey once on an issue that a couple of friends asked me to talk to about. He was interested in relating to something that getting some justice out of China for American citizens. And, and, uh, you know, I I presented it to him and he said, that's good. That's good. We'll take care of that. I said, may I ask Mr. President, you know, who's going to take care of it? He said, I will. And I said, (laughs) sir, no, no, (laughs) you know, you're the leader of the free world. This is a second, third level issue. You got to give this to somebody. He said, no, no, I'll take care of it. Well, well, my worry was that you know it would get lost, right? Because he's got a lot to worry about, huh? But yeah, I mean, what I, happened to it? Uh, well, kind of got lost, kind of got <laughs> lost. But it, but you know, he's had a couple of reminders of it, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, I want to get on that thing." But something else always intervenes. But you know, you got to love the take charge thing. You got to love the confidence. And I was just remarking yesterday. You know, has any president ever been? You know, he's totally hated by the press. Has any president ever been more accessible to the press than this guy? Every time he gets goes out. To that helicopter, he gives a 20, 30-minute press conference. Yeah, and and what he says to the press is what he's saying inside the Oval Office. There's no secrets here. There's no uh, obfuscation. He's very transparent. What he's thinking about in the Oval Office is what he tweets out, and it's what he says to the press. As my wife likes to say, no guile, you know, and that's a nice thing no, to. No uh, it's a nice thing to see. Let's let's talk about uh, some issues. I will talk in a little few minutes remaining about the, sort of the last part of your book. Uh, excuse the transition here. I will go back to China. You know Tom Cotton, right? Yeah. Senator Cotton. Yeah. Okay. Tom Cotton's not so sure about the coronavirus, you know, how it started, mm-hmm. because uh, this uh, thing, this point of origin is not so far from a lab where they developed the bio, what, biological warfare stuff. Uh, do you yeah. think that that might be true? It might be. Um, I don't know that we'll ever figure yes, it out. I think what's yeah. far more damning, though, is the fact that the Chinese knew about this for months before they raised any alarms. So it had already gotten spread around the world before the Chinese announced it, took any measures, 
or did anything that, you know, obviously whatever they would do would have to interfere with their economy. But they they let the whole world be vulnerable to the point where they knew, the senior leadership of the Chinese government and party, Communist Party, knew that they had a problem in China. And yet they sent Chinese, the senior most Chinese officials, to the White House, to the Oval Office, to, for the signing ceremony of phase one of the China-U.S. trade deal. So how responsible was that? I think that the Chinese, the way they've handled this is a real indicator that an authoritarian system doesn't work. And to me, it is an indicator that the Chinese, despite what they say about wanting to be a world leader and the Chinese model is how the world should go, democracy is finished, the West time is over. I think the Chinese have shown themselves to be very irresponsible leaders of the world community by the way they've handled this. You just did did something I have to ask you about because I've been worrying about this. I'm not trying to correct you. I'm asking you, why are we talking Mm -hmm. about authoritarian? Didn't we all buy Gene Kirkpatrick the distinction between authoritarian and totalitarian? Aren't these totalitarians and that there are some authoritarians we can live with, but we can't live with totalitarians? Look, to me, we're we're quibbling about how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. This is a country... That is a communist country, and whether they're pure communists or they're socialists, they are a top-down country, and they are authoritarian, they are totalitarian. You could make the argument, well, you could make the argument either way, but to my mind, what we have sold ourselves in the West and in the foreign policy world that I live in, for decades we said we're going to help China as China gets richer, develops the middle class, it will have an open economy, and it will have an open society. So all the things that we helped the Chinese with in their economic development as they were coming up in the world, so we were helping their economy develop at the expense of our own. We were doing it because we had a foresight that then we would have a a good ally, a trading partner, and an open society. None of that has worked. The Chinese have gotten more tightly controlled and, and power in the hands, really, of one man, Xi Jinping, who is now president up for life of China. He's the new emperor. Yeah, no, I dissented uh, Empower America from Gene, the same Gene Kirkpatrick and Jack Kemp and, and Weber mm-hmm. and everybody else on the permanent normal trade relations. I, this notion that, uh, you know, trade and capitalism was going to soften up their ideology didn't work, did it? Didn't happen. No, no but it was a no. good Look, it was a good idea good at the time because it certainly right. worked in Japan and Korea and in the European countries. It just didn't work in China, and we just took our eye off the ball, and we could let it go way too far in that direction before we've now started paying attention. Revolution, Trump, Washington, and we the people are KT McFarland. Can you stay with us another couple of minutes? I just have a few more of things course. I want to get into. This is great. Um, America. You, you you talk about the strengths of America and, and the distinctive marks of America toward the end of the book. Um, do you st- you still have confidence in America and American principles, ideals? I know you do. How about the American future? Do you believe that? Um, that that we have it that we that we have it pretty securely. I was reading correspondence between Adams and Jefferson and those guys, uh, and I wasn't going to be outdone by the Democrats and their devotion to the founders. Recently found uh, <laughs> devotion to those dead white males. Uh, anyway, oh, James Madison in the mouth of Nancy Pelosi. Anyway, but the, you know they're talking about this is very fragile. Maybe a hundred years, maybe one hundred fifty years. You know we've way past that. Are we? Um, and then I have a more specific version of this question. Are we are we okay for the future? Yeah. So what happened 
Bill was after I survived the Mueller investigation and they finally said, well, they probably wouldn't charge me with a crime. And I, I was faced with the choice of, you know, do I plead guilty to something or do I just fight to prove my innocence? And in the end, they decided to just let me go. They moved on to other things. I couldn't give them what they, they wanted, which was the narrative to deliver Trump. And I wouldn't do it and I couldn't do it. So then I fled the country. My husband and I got on a red eye to Glasgow from New York and we went to the most obscure and remote parts of the Western Highlands and Islands of Scotland. We went where there was no cell phone, no Wi-Fi, not even any TV. And I just took long while. I was so traumatized because what was my country going through? What was happening to me? Is this the end of America, like you've just said? Because if we have a police state where the FBI and the intelligence community and the Washington establishment can do this to even the rich and powerful Donald Trump, they can do it to anybody. And the more I thought about it, the more I went back and read the founders and looked at American history, I realized, wow, we seem to have these rebellions against the establishment every 40 years or so, because I concluded that this was way bigger than just Washington doesn't like Trump. It's really Washington is fighting to preserve its status quo power and prestige and privileges and policies against a, a population that is rejecting them, whether it's rejecting them in the form of Donald Trump for the Republicans or even Bernie Sanders for the Democrats. And, and I realized a couple of things. One, America is a really dynamic society. We're probably one of the most dynamic societies in the history of the world. We're constantly changing. And part of it is immigration, but part of it is demographics and geographics and their geography, um, the way uh, the revolutions, the industrial revolution, the tech revolution, digital revolution, we're always changing. We're like popping up all, all over the country doing different things all the time. And yet government, by its very nature, is preserves the status quo. They're not nimble enough to keep up with our changing society. So every 40 years or so, the American people, we the people, say, Washington doesn't solve my problems anymore. Let's get rid of those guys. Let's throw all the bums out get new people, new ideas. And we've done it with great regularity. It's often caused by different Reagan. economic causes. But we did, that's why, that was the American Revolution, right? Overthrowing the status quo, governing powers that were not getting the job done for the American colonials. And then we did was it, it again. Also, was it also, go ahead. No, no, but I think we've done it again and again and again every 40 years or so. It seems that the governing powers, the status quo, who start off as revolutionaries themselves, after 40 years, they or their heirs just no longer are working for the people. So the people have, we have these populist revolutions, often led by the most obscure, I mean, not people that you would think of, right? Donald Trump, Abraham Lincoln, um, Stonewall, um, Andrew Jackson. We've always had different kinds of leaders who emerged during these periods of transition, and they're miserable, the periods of transition. We're all yelling at each other. Nobody gets along. We're all fighting civil war. We actually fought a war. Um, with each other, but I think at the end of these periods of transformation, that's a period of creative dest destruction, and that's, in fact, to me, the essence of American greatness. It's not just, America's not just where you come to reinvent yourself and who you are, it's where the nation, society is reinvented. And that is what keeps us forever strong and forever young. And forever, you know, mourning in America, as you've written about. Uh, and for, I keep trying to ask you, 40 years ago, that would have been Reagan, whom you and I yeah. both served, right? That was that was we another big shakeup. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Uh, okay. 
Okay, the more particular form of this, and it really knocked me over. I had organized at the request of the vice president a small group of people, Washington people, to come to dinner and talk about, you know, what to do, what not to do. And Gary Bauer was there. Gary was my uh, undersecretary of education. And he said, uh, I forget, he said, you guys are doing a great job, you and President Trump. He said, but is this just a brief respite from the downward you know, decline of this country, you know, and, and once you leave, you're defeated for a second term or you serve your second term and got, oh, you're going to go back to the decline. Um, I was thinking while you were talking, one of my favorite phrases about America, the American capacity for self-renewal, you know, it just seems we have that capacity for self-renewal. So, you know, I, I, I never want to despair, but I sometimes think um, you know, Isaiah in the Old Testament, I'm a theoretical pessimist. I think it's all in the end, when and ashes but operationally man i'm an optimist you know how can we move the ball today but but as america i mean we have a future right you believe we have a future you believe this capacity we have for reinventing ourselves will carry us forward i think that you know it, it happens it just happens with great regularity it's always different i can't promise to tell you what the roadmap is but we did it and we threw off the british and created our own nation and then 40 years later, we had the Jacksonian Revolution, where Andrew Jackson came in and expanded the suffrage, um, it expanded electoral rights and voting rights for a great number of people, and also really transformed government. And then we had a civil war where the Washington establishment couldn't get the job done. They couldn't cope with slavery and non-slavery. And so we had a war to sort of figure out what's the next step. And then after the civil war, we had a great expansion of freedom, a pop of wealth. We had the Industrial Revolution and that road for about 40 years or so. And then Teddy Roosevelt became president. Again, an odd, he became president when the president was assassinated. So he was a vice president. He wasn't even elected president. And yet he had a reform movement to bring rights to workers and to prevent monopoly powers um, in the Industrial Revolution. And so then we had a Great Depression 40 years after that, went through the same, the government couldn't solve our Great Depression. So we had Franklin Roosevelt who came in and changed things. And then 40 years after that, Reagan came along because FDR had put too much government. So sometimes these revolutions are because we have too much government, sometimes because we have too little government, sometimes it's because of social policies, sometimes it's the effect of economic policies. But every single time the result is the same. We get rid of the ruling class, the elites of the day. We replace them with new people, new ideas, and we're kind of fresh again. It's like mowing the grass. We grow exponentially, and it's an exciting time in America again once we're starting anew. Like you said, reinvention. All right. And there, except I have to get your read on on the reinvention of yesterday or the last two days. Any comment on the Super Tuesday and the the rise of Lazarus Biden? (laughs) Look, the Democrats are having a civil war in the, within their party. It's the it's the left versus versus the socialists. So it's the loony left versus the really loony left left. In the same way, we the Republicans had a civil war in 2016: Republican establishment versus Trump. We'll see how the Democrats do. But Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are the same things at opposite ends of the political spectrum. And in both cases, their parties are saying same old, same old doesn't work for me anymore. Jeb Bush is not going to be the president of the United States because the Republican Party thought he was stale and tired. Will Biden? We'll see. But I think that whatever happens in the Democrats, they will have a civil war that will go on through the election and perhaps beyond. 
Two more, two more things on this. Someone observed it's not original to me. I thought it was smart. They said if, if Sanders were nominated, people would, almost everybody, all the moderates, all the regulars would, uh, would fall in. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, even the Biden people. But, uh, if, uh, uh if Biden gets the nod, the Sanders people aren't coming. They're, they're not going to come. They didn't, I they think didn't that's come. That's a true statement. Yeah, because they're even madder this time. Than, yeah. And I mean, they were ganged up on. The president's hilarious on this, isn't he? So I feel for Bernie because he's, as you said, he's the same guy <laughs> at the other end of the spectrum. Hey, they're ganging up on him. He knows what that's like, right? <laughs> he lives it every single day. I was with him over the weekend at CPAC and spent some time talking to him, and he's energized. I mean, the great thing about Trump. He is, you know, what is it, cometh the hour, cometh the man in the Bible. And Trump, for all the warts, he is one mean, tough guy. And you need one mean, tough guy to shake up Washington. You know, you're not going to have revolutionary change without hurting a lot of feelings. So I think that he's the right guy. uh, Bob Gates, uh, uh, who I've had my run-ins with, but, uh, you know, knows a fair amount, has a lot of experience, said in his book he thought Joe Biden was wrong on every single position he took in foreign policy. (laughs) Well, let me tell you what Trump said at CPAC on Saturday afternoon. He was going through... The, can- the different candidates and their strengths and mostly weaknesses. And for tr- for Biden, he said, look, Biden has trouble remembering where he is, but it's not hard. All he needs to do is take a card to the podium saying, Ohio. So when he says, hello, people, he doesn't say Iowa. He says, Ohio. And he said, look, he's, whatever happens, if, if Biden wins, he's going to be off in a home somewhere, and it's going to be the Democrat establishment that's going to be running things for him. Well, I'll tell you one thing Donald Trump has solved for me as a you know, former academic, and I, yeah, I guess I get a little you know, high horsey sometimes, like asking you about totalitarian authoritarian, uh, is you know, saying, gee, it's a country that loves its entertainment and amusement, but when do we do serious politics? You know, we got to choose. Donald Trump, you don't have to choose. I mean, when I see what the TV listings are, if Trump rallies on, I'm turning that in because there's no, no be- no, there's no better TV. But, you know, we all laugh about it. But Trump has shown that he has a real finger on what's happening in the country. I mean, when I talked to Jared Kushner and others who were on the Trump in the Trump plane during the Trump campaign in 2016, Trump started running as a businessman. He said, America is a broken company. I know how to fix broken companies. It's a great company, but it's too much in debt. It's too, you know, doesn't sort of serve the people. And so he ran as a businessman looking at a balance sheet. But once they started going and you know, setting down in a city and going to a stadium and 20, 30,000 people waited in the rain, in the cold for hours to see Trump, all of a sudden Trump and everybody around him understood, whoa, this is a revolution. These are the faces that go with the policies that Trump and his other guys looked at as businessmen. But once they started seeing the people and the people who had been forgotten by both political parties, who had been ignored, who had been shoved to the side, made to feel guilty if they complained about it, then it became a real revolution for Trump. Yeah, I'll I'll close here. Let me close with a story you'll like. I used to have lunch once every month with three other guys. I won't tell you their names uh, because we agreed we'd keep it 
confidential, but these are three well-known people, neocons, as I was. Um, and uh, you know them, all their names very well, and they're never Trumpers now. Anyway, we were sitting having lunch at the Palm, and the question came up. This was uh, May or June of uh, 2016. If it's uh, if it's Trump and uh, and Hillary, who would you vote for? They went around the table, and everyone else said either nobody or Hillary. And I said, what's wrong with you guys? What, you know, what is wrong with you? Are you crazy? And I'd already had a martini, so, you know, I'd probably <laughs> either stopped or had another, whatever. But um, the argument got very heated, and then I said something kind of inadvertently, but it turned out to be right. I said, you know, these are guys who write columns and magazine articles and stuff and op-eds. I said, your problem is no one who has ever been to a Trump rally has ever read anything you guys have ever written. And um, I think I nailed it. And I think, you know, the fact that he fails to appreciate them, you know, when Obama came to town, George Will had a dinner in his honor and invited, you know, a bunch of intellectual types. And they all just sort of totally enjoyed him, you know, and he enjoyed them. Uh, Trump didn't care. It's like the first one of the first best things he ever did was say, I'm not going to the White House Correspondents Center. You know, Mrs. Bennett and I walked out of two of those just because it was so gross and so ugly and so insulting to presidents. And uh, he, he just didn't care. He didn't care about their opinion, which is great, which is a great thing. You know, anyway, I, I'm going on. This is your interview, not mine. KT, thank you very much. Uh, I really, as you could tell, enjoyed the book. I think you could tell I read the book. Revolution, Trump, Washington, and we the people. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Well, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's billbennettpodcast at gmail.com. We want you to share the podcast, whatever it's called, with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week. And what is it called? The Bill Bennett Show. Is what it's called. Well, well, that's easy enough. Right. So, so, and the website, again, thebillbennettshow.com. Yeah.